Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Well, we're continuing to minister on the battle for your identity. And I'm coming to recognize that this is, this is just a fight that never ends because the enemy will never quit. And um, the only way we can lose is to quit fighting. So if you want to live in victory, you just have to keep fighting. James said, the Roberts paraphrase, which is loose, a believer that doesn't walk in the word is like a man who looks in the face or looks in a mirror and sees who he is and then walks away and forgets who he, usually, who he actually is. Well, that mirror we look into is the word. Amen? And I'm just, I'm going to really briefly, I am, I'm going to move like lightning today. I'm declaring it. And I'm a, I don't think Chuck can keep up with me on the, the scriptures, but I'm just going to tag a few. First Timothy 6.12 says, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. I am convinced more and more that the laying hold on eternal life, Jesus, or Paul here is not talking about getting born again. He's talking about born-again believers laying hold and claiming and living and walking in what God has given us. That takes a, a fight. We have to fight for it because the enemy will always try to steal from you. John 10.10 10 says that. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. And he doesn't, he, he's, he's non-discriminatory in his stealing, his killing, his destroying. He goes after his own kids, and he especially goes after God's kids. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down of strongholds. Primary strongholds that you have to deal with are how you think. That's why Paul said in Romans 12.2 that we are to renew our minds. We, we should not think the way the world thinks, and we should not think in particular about ourselves the way we used to think B.C., before Christ. When you get born again, you, but, but, but notice, it says we need to renew our minds. He said, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you renew your mind. We have to do it. God doesn't come in and change the way you think. God is a gentleman. He only does what you ask him to do. And when it comes to your soul and how you view the world, your um, worldview, and we all have a worldview. One of my favorite westerns is uh, Lonesome Dove. And the two main characters are talking one time and... and um, they're looking for a cook, and, and Gus, the favorite, he's the fun guy, he, he says, well, I like this cook because he's, he has a philosophy, and I, I just can see he and I sitting around and talking over the campfire at night about philosophy. And the other guy says, well, I don't know that I got a philosophy, so I don't really care. Well, he did have a philosophy. That was his philosophy. There's only one thing that works, and that's work. And everything else is a waste of time. Just work. Well, we all have a philosophy of life. We all have an outlook on life. 
But that outlook needs to be shaped by what the Word says and who Jesus says we are and who, who He says we are and what He says He has given us. Amen? There are, Romans 8, 6, the reason to be carnally minded, to be fleshly minded, to think the way you used to think is death. It will result in sickness, disease, and eventually physical death. Doesn't mean you're going to die and go to hell because you're carnally minded, but it will mean that you're you're not going to walk in God's blessings, and you're probably going to die early, earlier than you should. When you die and how you die, you have a lot to say about that. But there are we we've seen there are two main tests. One we saw in the Garden of Eden, the devil presented to Eve, and he said, has God indeed said? He attacked the veracity of God's word. Really? That's what God said? If he can get you to doubt that, he's he's got you. And then in, in Matthew 4, in the temptations, after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, he he assaulted Jesus on his identity. He said, if... You are the son of God. Well, obviously, if he asks me, are you a son of God or the son of God? I'll say, no, I am not the son of God, but I am a son of God. Jesus raised me up and has made me to sit in heavenly places in Christ. I, Jesus was without sin, but he's made me righteous. And that's a hard one to swallow, especially when you've just done something stupid and got off in sin, got in your flesh. That's why I say, if you're not intimately um, acquainted with 1 John 1, 9, then um, you're, you're living in misery. Because believe me, I have over the years, I thought more than once, I've worn that scripture out. Well, thank God, his blood is eternal. You can't wear it out. And 1 John 1, 9 is not about getting forgiveness. It's about you getting back in fellowship so you can get back to work doing what God's called you to do. Amen? We have faced those, those same two tests every day. Can I trust that who God called me in His Word, what He's written about me in His Word, can I trust that His Word is true? And we looked at, at 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're his own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God, Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit has done everything he's done for us and to us for one reason. So that we can take it to a lost and dying world. If you think about it. If I'm already seated with with Christ in heavenly places, why did Jesus, why did the Father not just translate me out the second I got born again? Why not just take me on to heaven? Because he needs us in the world to do the work that Jesus did, only we're doing it in mass. The anointing that Jesus carried on himself is now spread out through his entire body all over the globe. And while we can look around in the United States and think, wow, 
our culture is really going down. There are pockets of revival right now. And there's only one thing stopping you personally from having revival. And that's you. I know we pray for revival and we all want to see revival. Well, revival has to start with you. You have to get revived. You have to get excited about being born again. You have to get excited about the promises that God has made you. Is it going to be easy? No, it's a fight. We just read that. It's a battle. And you are going to have to fight tooth and nail 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. You cannot let up, ever. Well, that's hard. No, it's not. Jesus said his burden was light. The reason it's not hard, I just mentioned John the Baptist. Jesus was tempted after he was baptized. Well, John the, Bapti John the Baptist baptized and called on people to repent, but only thing he gave them was the law. The law was holy. The law was righteous. But the law only had one purpose. That was to prove to you that you couldn't keep it. The law makes demands of us. Now, grace also makes demands. The law will tell you, uh, don't commit adultery. Grace says, don't even look on a woman to lust. Wow, that's a little tougher. Well, how can, how can Jesus ask us to do something harder than what the law said? Because grace also empowers you to do that extra. The law didn't have empowered, it had one th empowered to do one thing. Convince you you need a Savior. And when you get convinced you need a Savior and you turn to Jesus, you receive His grace, that grace has the power to already put you over. But most Christians look around and their attitude towards life is, gosh, this is just hard, I don't know if I can do it. Well, of course you can't do it. You have to allow Christ to do it in you. Amen? Now, that calling that we just saw in, in 1 Peter 2.9, Jesus did all this that we might proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That is exactly the same calling that was on Jesus. He didn't come out of darkness, but He lived in darkness. He lived in a dark world. And He proclaimed to everyone, I will bring you out of your darkness and bring you into my light. Acts 10, 38 says that. How, G, how God anointed, notice, He didn't anoint Christ. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. It points to His humanity. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that um, Jesus, while He was, e he was the eternal um, Son of God, he was the second of person of the Godhead. He set all of those privileges aside. Nothing that he did as a human being did he do as the second person of the Godhead. He did it all as a man anointed by the Holy Spirit. Now, 
The reason he did that so that we could look and say, if this man, he was sinless, and believe me, that, that makes things a little easier. But I've been delivered from the power of sin. You've been delivered from the power of sin. Paul says in Romans that sin shall not have dominion over you. Had people asked, well, do you mean that we can live sinless in this life? Yes. And I'll, I'll give you the reason why, and this is not my quote, although it's going to end up mine because I'm, I'm not going to quote it exactly like the other guy said it. But if, if, if you only get free of sin when you die, then Jesus is not your Savior. Death is your Savior. You get free of sin when you get born again because Jesus is your Savior. He's your Savior from the power of sin. That does not mean that you still do not have the nature of sin residing in your fleshly body. And when you either die or you get translated at, at the return of Christ, you won't have that sin nature tugging on you to do wrong all the time. And life will be different without that. But you can resist that sin now and it cannot hold you. If you've ever gone to a county fair and watched the grease pig contest... They'll grease a pig up and put kids out there, adult, whoever wants to try. And I'm telling you, you grease that pig up well enough, you cannot grab it. That thing will pull away from you. Well, that's how we are to sin. The devil will try to grab you, but you're like a greased pig to him. He can't hold on because you've been delivered from his kingdom, translated over into the kingdom of God, and you are no longer his. He has no legal claim to you. But you have to agree with that. If you're constantly saying, I just can't conquer this sin. This sin has my number. Guess what? It's got your number. You have just voluntarily walked into the jail cell that has no bars. If you ever watched that silly old movie, uh, Support Your Local Sheriff. I, I love it. It's crazy, it's stupid, but it's funny. James Gardner was the sheriff, and he, he brought Bruce Dean in, because he always played a great bad guy, brought him into the brand new jail that did not have any, win any bars on the windows or bars on the doors. But before he brought him in, he sprinkled some red paint on the floor. And he walked him in, sat him down in the cell, and he says, that's your spot, don't move out of this cell. And James Dean just kind of laughed and said, what are you going to do? And he looked down and he said, whoa, what's that on the floor? He said, well, that's what's left of the last guy that didn't listen to what I said. And he spent the next several weeks sitting in a cell with no bars. Well, that's what the devil does to us. He puts us in prison and says, you have to stay here because of what you did. And there's no bars. There's, there, the doors are open. The windows are open. In fact, there's no, not even any walls. He's just got you convinced that you're trapped. And you just hang around there and cry about how bad you are. And Jesus is just standing there shaking his head and saying, Did you not read in my word where I said, You are the righteousness of me. I have no sin. So you have no sin. Get up and get out of there and go to work. 
Well, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, going back to Acts 10.38, with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That's our calling, to take God's anointing, the anointing that you received, and go out and heal all that are oppressed by the devil. And that, that includes everything. That includes spiritual healing for people that are tormented over their past. That includes physical healing for people that are struggling with things in their body. That includes social healing for those that just feel like they don't fit in anywhere. See, that's, why the, that's what is, should be so attractive about the body of Christ. The fact that we, in, in, in our city, that we have white churches and black churches and Chinese churches and, and uh, Bhutanese churches, it ought not be that way. We, ought to, we, we actually, in actual point of fact, we have one church, the body of Christ. But we separate to worship differently. And a lot of times we separate along cultural and racial lines. Now, people are called to different bodies, and I, and I realize not everybody is going to feel comfortable worshiping the way we worship. That's fine. Find where God has called you at home, but sometimes he's also called us to stretch ourselves. I'll never forget it, and, and because it's Gina's tale, I'm going to tell it on her. But it, it was funny, when Gina and I first got introduced to being filled with the Spirit. I was one of those odd Southern Baptists that had grown up in a Baptist church and never once heard a sermon on tongues for or against. Now, from talking to other people that grew up Baptist, they all look at me and say, wow, we heard every other week how tongues was of the devil. And I'm saying, I never heard it, never, ever, that our pastor preach about tongues being wrong. Well, I was young in the Lord as far as knowing anything. And a good friend gave me Kenneth E. Hagin's book on how to receive the Holy Spirit. And he told me, this will help you. This is great. And I read it and I saw it in the scriptures. And I said, well, I'm ready. What do we do? And I mean, 30 seconds later, I was praying in tongues. But like I said when we were taking communion, naturally, I'm just kind of open. I see big pictures, and if you can convince me that something's from God, man, I'll just barrel on. I'll jump out of the airplane and then look around and see if i got a parachute on. When it comes to spiritual things, I'm ready to go most of the time. But I went home and shared with my wife, and she read the book. She saw the stuff. But the first time we got in a service where people were openly praying in tongues, worshiping in the Spirit... They had a prayer line for people, and the pastor up front, or the guy, I don't know if he was the pastor, but whoever was leading the service says, you all reach your hands out here to pray for this person. And I saw her, man. She crossed her arms. Like, eh, you're not telling me what to do. And it, it took a little bit to, to get her open, and then even after she was open for it, because she saw it in the Word, she didn't know how to receive it. It was, it just could not, she couldn't understand it, so she had a hard time receiving it until, you know, we prayed, 
She said, well, I receive it by faith. Are you praying in tongues? No. She was washing dishes at the sink one day and finally got her mind shut off. And next thing she knew, she was praying in tongues. Well, some of us are like that. We, it, it, it's hard to receive because our heads get in the way. We try to figure it out. We saw it last week when Jesus went across the, the, the lake and the, he warned the disciples, be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and be careful of the leaven of the Herodians. And they reasoned among themselves, oh Lord, this is because we, didn't, we only brought one loaf of bread. He had just fed 30,000 people on a little boy's lunch. What got him in trouble? They started thinking instead of just listening to what the Lord said. Jesus, the man, the human, was anointed in everything he did. He did under that anointing. God has called us to do the same thing. If you look at Matthew 28, verse 18 and 19, this is the Great Commission. And I'm going to read a couple of different ones. You can also uh, turn to Mark 16, 17, and 18. But in Matthew's account, after Jesus was resurrected, after he had, had, had preached, right before he was ascended, he, it says, Jesus came and spoke to them, meaning the disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Put that in the modern translation. Jesus pointed to himself and he said, I'm it. There is no one in the universe... Not even the Father that has control over anything but me. I'm the chief. I'm the head. All authority. Verse 19 says, go therefore. That, if you interpret that rather than translate it, what Jesus is saying, look, I have all of this authority. It's been given to me. The Father has exalted my name and my throne temporarily above His throne. Because I am that and because I am in you, you go now. I'm putting the assignment on your backs. You go and make disciples of the nations. Now, you ask most people, what is the primary job of the church? Most American Christians? They'll tell you, preach the gospel and get people born again. And that is absolutely 100% wrong. God never called us to get anyone born again. He called us to make disciples. Now don't get me wrong, the first step in making a disciple is to get someone born again. Preach the gospel to them, see them transformed. But for most Christians... That's the end of the process. I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I'm, I'm not going to hell. That's great news. But you, you were just born. That would be like Nicole when she gives birth in a few weeks. Them rejoicing, saying, oh, we've got a new baby, we've got a new baby. And then 24 hours later, they leave the hospital and they leave the baby behind. And I'm sure the doctors and nurses would come running and saying, excuse me, you forgot something. Oh, our job's done. We got it born again. It's on its own. We birthed that thing. And Nicole's going to look at it and say, hey, you spent nine months making me sick. 
miserable, hot. I could never get more than 30 seconds from a bathroom. I'm done. You're in the world. Good luck. I'll pray for you. Well, she'd go to jail. They'd all, they both go to jail. Why? Because they're neglecting a newborn child who cannot care for themselves. They don't have the skills. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have anything. They are totally helpless and totally dependent on mom and dad. We get someone born again. Guess what? They have got no more capacity to live the Christian life than a brand new baby. None. And normally we walk away from them and say, Great, go live a perfect life, and if you don't, we'll be watching. Don't you dare mess up, because you do, we'll shoot you. We shoot our wounded. Man, you're, I mean, falling, that is, it's just not allowed. If you fall, we don't want to see you anymore. You're out of the fellowship. It's sad, but true. We are called to make disciples. It's one of the reasons we have to walk in love towards one another. And we also have to realize, I don't care. I, I know Christians. They have, I know myself. I said earlier, I got saved at 8. I'm 65. Now, the first 20 years, I learned nothing. So none of that counts. I was at, at 20, spiritually 28 years old, I, or 20 years old. I was 28 when I finally decided, this, I need to get serious about this. If, if this. if this book contains the words of life, then i got to get in here and figure out what it says. Now, the shame of it is, is my church, my pastor, my parents, all good Christians, all dedicated Christians, and they never taught that to me in 20 years. Might as well just throw it in the trash can for all the good it was doing me. But in the, in the time since then, 35, 36 years since then, I have grown up some. I've learned some things. But I'm still not where I need to be. Well, I know some 30-year-old Christians, they're still, they're still in, the, in the bassinet, still wearing a diaper, still expecting somebody to bottle feed them. We can't get mad at them. We have to start feeding them and watch them grow up. Occasionally, the police will find a child that's been abused, been locked away, not been fed. Just recently, and I forget where it was, I saw a story where this little boy was found, and he was like five or six years old, and he weighed like 25 pounds. He had been starved for years, locked up in a room downstairs, and never saw the light of day. Had a bucket and got fed maybe once a day and not much. There are Christians that way. There are Christians who actually think they can come to church on Sunday morning and get fed and not eat again until the next Sunday morning when they get fed again. You're going to be a starved. You're going, spiritually, you're going to look like some of the prisoners they brought out of Auschwitz and Dachau. You're going to be wasted away to nothing. You're going to be an adult who can't, can hardly lift themselves up because you're spiritually starving. Now the answer to that is not to have church every day, although as it gets closer, <laughs> that's not a bad option. 
You're just going to have to find somebody to preach more than, you know, the pastor and I, because you'll wear us out. But you need to preach to yourself every day. You need to feed on the Word every day. You need to meditate on the Word all day. When your mind says, this is how it is and it's miserable, you need to grab your mind. You need to treat your unrenewed mind like a bratty child. And a bratty child, there's only one way to handle them, and that is to snatch them up. If you have to, smack them around a little bit. God made a place. You, you take the, the, the board of education and apply it to the seat of knowledge, and you force them to do what you command them to do. Now let me just run a little rabbit here, and I'm going to meddle. In, in modern parenting... Most of the modern parents try to reason with children. And by children, I mean children. I'm talking about backstage, you know, little kids. Not probably mid-grade mid school age. They try to reason with them. You cannot reason with a five-year-old. You can't even reason with an eight-year-old. They don't have the mental capacity to reason and to figure things out. That's why we call them children. God said he chose Abraham because he knew Abraham would command his children. Now, I don't mean you have to be a tyrant. You're always bossing around. You, can, you, you need to sit down and explain things to your kids. But you also, if they don't get it, sometimes you have to say, sorry, you're not doing this. I remember Tiffany, our daughter, she taught kindergarten when she was in, uh, I think this was when she was in London in one of her classes. She, they brought this little boy in and he was a wild man. He would literally, if, if she turned her back, she'd, he'd go to the door, run out the school, and they'd have to chase him down the block. We're in, they're in London. He's going home. He's not staying in this place. He don't like it. He doesn't speak the language. Spoke no English. Now try, try that on for size. You know what she did? She stuck him on her hip for six to eight weeks and carried him the entire day. That's the only way she could control him, but she controlled him. And finally, at a certain point, he started submitting. Why? Because he realized, what am I going to do? She's just going to grab me and hold me. That's how we need to treat our unrenewed mind. That's the stronghold that we take when, when, when we st our mind starts saying, hey, I know Jesus has the authority, but I, I don't have any authority. Well, either you do or Jesus is a liar. If he's a liar, take your Bible, throw it away, stay home on Sunday morning, sleep in, get up and, you know, have some fun. Because none of this really works. It's either true or it's not. And if your brain fights you, grab your brain, turn it over and hold on to it. And preach to yourself. There's been more than once and I've, I just had to sit down and say, John, just shut up. Now, my grandkids rebuke me every time they hear me. Oh, mom, mom, Gimpa said shut up. That's a bad word. It's not when you're talking to yourself. And sometimes you just need to tell your brain, shut up. I'm not listen to you anymore. This is what God says. You do that after a while and suddenly you will find, just like that little boy with Tiffany, you will find that your brain finally gives in. 
Your unrenewed thinking will finally start to submit to you. And it won't be screaming so loud and suddenly you'll start saying, yeah, I guess I do have authority. Now, it may take a while. It may not take long at all. Some, some, some people will have strengths in some areas and some things will come really quick. And something else will be str- you'll struggle with. Don't judge people because they can't get something very quick because there's probably some other area that you really struggled with that they just got in a snap. It's part of the reason we're not to compare ourselves amongst ourselves. Because we all have different strengths and different weaknesses. But what should we do? Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples. How do we do that? Well, that's Mark 16, 17, and 18. When we go out, verse 17 says, and these signs shall follow those who believe. In my name. We come in the name of Jesus. We come as His representative. We come as His, as his voice, as His hands, as His body. And, and, and you have, should have, the boldness. When you go to lay hands on somebody, pray somebody for whatever reason, you don't have to be tentative about it. Lord, visit them. Well, that's unbelief right there. He is there. He's there in you. He's there visiting. He's physically or spiritually present there. Why would you ask Him to come visit somebody? You are standing in His stead. When you reach out with your hands, it's His hands. And until you see yourself as Jesus... Now, don't run off with that. You're not the Lord Jesus. But you stand in His place. And until you recognize, I am His disciple. And when I lay hands on this person, it's Jesus laying hands on them. And I have the right to to restore them and to bring them out and to heal them from all of the oppression of the devil. The devil has nothing that I can't deal with through the anointing of Christ because I am coming in his name. And notice what it says. I will ca- they will cast out demons. In fact, you can personalize it. I will go because these signs will follow me. Because I'm a believer. In the name of Jesus, I will cast out demons. I will speak with new tongues. I will, if I take up serpents, now... You bring serpents to the church, I'm making a new door. And then I'm calling the police on you. That doesn't mean God's called us to handle snakes. But if something, if, if, if you get bit, if something happens to you, you have a right to say, no, you have no effect on me. Paul did it. Paul got shipwrecked and he grabbed some wood out of a wood pile and a serpent snapped onto his arm, his hand, and all the people there recognized the serpent and said, he'll be dead within a, a day. And he shook it off and said, nope, not going to happen to me because I'm Christ's representative to you people and we're going to have revival. And they kept waiting for him to die. And he didn't die. And next thing you know, they want to say, oh, the, the gods are amongst us. And they wanted to build a statue to him and worship him. He said, no, wait a minute. I'm not a god. We ought to be so, we ought to be able to identify with Christ so strongly that people start looking at us and thinking they're God. 
that is a possibility. Now, don't entertain that thought for a second because you'll lose the anointing in a heartbeat. But we have that power. But look at what else it says. If they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. We look at that and we have no idea what a radical thought that was to a Jew. That, to lay hands on the sick, that wasn't in their practice at all. Jesus gave us the story in Luke chapter 10 about the Good Samaritan. There was a priest and a Levite that this man went out. He got beat up. He was half dead. He was beaten. He was robbed. Levite came up. He walked right past him. Priest came up. He walked right past him. Why? Did they not care? No, they cared. But they also knew that there was a commandment that if I touch someone that's dead, I will become unclean. Their deadness will get off on me. There were many times that Jesus would lay hands on lepers. You were commanded, don't touch someone that has leprosy. Why? Because you touch someone with leprosy, that leprosy can get off them onto you. The same principle worked with sin. <clears throat> if you have a sinner amongst you, don't associate with them. Because their sin will jump off on you. Their sinful habits will get off on you. And you'll find yourself living the same lifestyle they do. What was Jesus' attitude? He was the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan came along and he poured in the oil and the wine, both representative of the anointing and the Holy Spirit. And then he took them to, the, to an innkeeper and he paid for them to recover. If you look at the life of Jesus, what does Jesus do? Any leper that came to him, he'd slap hands on them in a heartbeat. You, I do a lot of hospital visits. You go to a hospital, if someone's got an infectious disease, you know it. There will be a sign on their door and the nurses will, boy, they will get rough with you if you don't gown up and glove up. Why? Because there's germs in that room. And those germs will get off on you and those germs will make you sick. When you get the authority in you that, that Jesus had, you don't, you don't walk around thinking, oh, some stuff might get on me. You walk around with the attitude, give me some germs. They better, they're going to run from me. I don't care what they've got. I'll slap hands on them and watch those germs, watch that infectious disease just depart. That has to be our attitude. Jesus did that for one reason. He knew who he was and he knew the power he had within him. And it wasn't his power as God. It was the anointing of the Holy Spirit on his humanity. We can carry that same anointing. And he took that anointing, he hung out and, and laid hands on the sinners and hung out with the sinners to the point that they called him a glutton and a drunk. The Pharisees got after him. The, the lady that anointed his feet with oil and dried his feet with her hair. The, the, the guy whose house they were in said, Now, if he truly was a prophet, he'd know that that woman that's anointing his feet was a sinner. Because if you're really holy, you don't just say sinner. It's sinner. you got a special pronunciation. 
And when she's anointing him, and she was a prostitute. Let's just, it wasn't just a sinner. She was a bad sinner. And when she laid her hands on him, if he was a prophet, he'd know that sin and that evil was getting off on him. But what happened? She got healed. He didn't get sinful. She got his righteousness. Why? Because his power was greater than anything that the devil could come up with. That's the, that, that's the identity. We have to just come and know that I've got the God of the universe on the inside of me. In Philippians 2, I mentioned earlier, where, where Paul says, Jesus laid aside all of the authority and all of the privileges he had as God. It says in, in verse uh, 5, it says, Let this mind be in, or let this mind also be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. We should think just like Jesus did. When we walk into the room, we ought to be looking for a fight with the devil. Not with people. I, I forget where, oh, I know where I was. I stopped for gas. I was coming home from Clarksville last week or the week before, I don't remember. Stopped for gas, and I pulled into a um, gas station, well lit, nice place, nice area. And no more than I got out of my car and I looked around, and there were about 30 um, bikers around me. And these weren't, you know, this wasn't Christian Motorcycle Club. These were real bikers. And they were rough. I mean, they looked rough. They looked like they'd slit your throat in a heartbeat. And part of me initially thought, maybe I ought to get gas down the road. <laughs> but then there was something that rose up on the inside of me and said, no. I, first of all, just because they look rough doesn't mean they are rough. I, I joked with, with Alan Moulton on Facebook this week. He, he said, I went in, he said, I shaved and I still look like an old man. And I replied to him, I said, it's because you are an old man. But you know, Alan, Alan's an intimidating guy. I think Alan's 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. Now he's not, you know, he's down 250, 260, something like that. He's a mere shadow of his former self. But even, even after having lost 150 pounds, he's still a big guy. And he, can, he looks intimidating. But he's got the heart of a puppy. I mean, that man, he's just, he, you, you see him with his little girls. Now, he roughhouses with the boys with his little girls. He's just as gentle as he can be. He's a gentle giant. Well, instead of getting afraid, because I do know people, they would have just got back in their car and left in a hurry. Now, what bothered me later was why didn't I just get out boldly and say, I command this area. I don't care if they are rough. There's nothing they're going to do to me. Because whether they're Christian or, or sinner, if they're a Christian, they're going to welcome me. If they're a sinner, the spirit on the inside of them is going to be afraid of me. There should have been a boldness inside of me, and, I, and I'm ashamed to say there wasn't. Where does that boldness come from? Well, I'm going to try to... I only got eight more pages of notes, but I'll try to wrap this up. That boldness comes from the anointing. We just talked about it, um, uh, Matthew chapter 3. It was Jesus was being baptized by John the Baptist. Now, if you think about it, Jesus was God... From birth to however old he was at the, at the baptism, probably around 30, 
He was God all of that time. And yet, and he came to John, and John didn't want to baptize him. John said, no, 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 no. You got this backwards. You need to baptize me. And Jesus said, no, it's necessary. The, the Greek there, there for word there that's translated for necessary or it's proper, different translations translated differently, it literally means to exalt something, to make it tower up. And what Jesus was saying to John was, no, this is, this is proper for me to do this because it's time for me to step up into my ministry. Now, we as Christians look at Jesus, and I know a lot of Christians, I've had them ask me over the years, why in the world would Jesus get baptized? We have a baptism. Somebody gets born again, we baptize them, and we always say, you, you are dead in Christ and you are raised to newness of life. What did Jesus have to die for? He was the perfect sinless Son of God. Well, to the Jews in the first century, even today somewhat, baptism had nothing to do with a new birth. When, when John baptized people, he baptized them into a baptism of repentance. You need to change. What it was was a marking. They more properly, even Jews today, and especially Messianic Jews, uh, Gina and I are, are acquainted with a, a, a Messianic pastor in Oklahoma. They have a, a swimming pool in their church. And they do, quite regularly, they have immersions. And they're not to, they don't represent you, you dying to sin and being born again into new life. What they represent, and this is what the baptism that Jesus did, they represent a marking I'm, I'm marking this event right now, and things will be different from this point on. And for Jesus, the marking was not the new birth. The marking was, I'm stepping out of obscurity, and I'm stepping into my ministry, and I shall be exalted. Why? Because when He came up out of the water, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended on Him, and God spoke and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus went to the wedding at Cana and did His first miracle. Now there are new movies out about the life of Christ, and, and unfortunately most of them are, are based on a, um, a, a book... It's out of the pseudepigrapha, which means it's sort of written about Jesus, but it's not canonical. It's not um, sacred writing. And specifically, most of the modern movies are based on the Gospel of Thomas. And the Gospel of Thomas will, has Jesus as a little boy healing birds, raising the dead, doing all these miracles. <clears throat> he could have done any of that had he done it as the, the second person of the Godhead. But Paul said in Philippians, he set all of that aside. He did no miracles. Matthew, uh, I don't remember if now it's at the end of chapter 3 or, or end of chapter 4, says that turning the water to wine at the wedding of Cana was the first of his miracles. Why would he be doing it now? Because now's the time for him to exalt. He said the same thing about us. These signs shall follow those that believe. If you're a believer in Christ, then you should be doing 
works. Why? Because it confirms the word. The signs confirm the word that you preach. Jesus is, is the age of miracles has not yet not passed. In fact, the age of miracles will never pass as long as God and the Spirit of God are in the earth. As long as the gospel is preached, miracles will be around. I mean, let's face it, the greatest miracle of all is getting born again. But it's not the only miracle. And we should be walking in those just like, like Jesus did. Now, why do we don't? Now, I, I've done with my introduction. I'm ready to preach my message. <laughs> You're laughing, but I'm serious. And I'm not going to get done today, but I am going to introduce it. And we'll pick it up another day. In Mark chapter 16, we just saw the call. But in the very first part of, of, of the 16th chapter is when... Um, the ladies went to the, the, to the tomb on the third day, first day of the week. The reason we meet on Sunday mornings, and I've, I've had, I remember I went to, I was involved in a pastor's prayer group. Lord, our, the, the group of pastors, there was about a 400 mile radius that we met. And we'd go, we went all the way down to eastern Kentucky and all the way up to central Indiana to get together, to pray together. And I was driving down to... Um, central Kentucky to go to this prayer meeting and I came on this little church they owned a I'm, I'm talking a, a, a um, billboard as big as any you'll see out here on I-65 huge it's on a two-lane snake path in the middle of Kentucky central Kentucky but what it said was this is the essence of it they had condensed it more if you don't worship on Saturday you're going to hell well, Paul said, look, every, there, one day is not different from any other day. It doesn't matter whether we worship. In fact, if you're only worshiping on Sunday, you've got a problem. Because you're supposed to worship on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Morning, noon, and night. Your whole life ought to be an act of worship. And if it's not, then you've got a problem. You, there's something else, exactly what the Lord said through Sherry last week. You're, you're, you're putting your eyes on things that are worthless instead of things that are eternal. We, we need to get minded. But here at, at, um, it was the first day of the week, Sunday morning. That's why traditionally Christian churches meet on Sunday morning. Because that's when Jesus rose again and that's the central tenet of Christianity. Not that Jesus went to the cross. Thank God he went to the cross. But if he, had, if he went to the cross but did not come out of the grave, the cross would have meant nothing. There would have been no victory for us. It's the fact that he came out of the grave, what we celebrate. Because when he came out, he brought us out with him. And he seated us with him. He sees us, he saw us as righteous before we ever got born again. In fact, he, this group, he saw us as righteous before we were ever born. Now, there's a couple of you old enough, you might have been around when Jesus lived, but not many. It's a joke. Come on. Y'all lighten up. I know it's been a while. But let me run through this. Mark chapter 16, verse 1 through 6, you had Mary Magdalene, who Jesus cast, I forget, seven or eight demons out of. 
uh, Mary the mother of Jesus, and this lady named Salome, who was evidently a, a, a relative of Mary. And they came to the tomb, and the tomb was empty. Because on the way there, they're talking to one another, and they're saying, how are we going to roll this big stone out of the way and get into the tomb? Because we need to anoint his body. Obviously, they're not expecting him to be resurrected. They're expecting to find a dead body in a tomb. And it's already three days cooking. I, I wouldn't have envied that task. But they get to the tomb and the stone's rolled away and they go into the tomb to find the body. And instead, there's an angel sitting there. And the angel says, <clears throat> he's not here. He's risen. And he commanded them in, in verse 7, he says, Go tell his disciples and Peter. That's an interesting little tidbit right there. All of the disciples, no exceptions, re, uh, uh, disavowed Jesus at, at the cross. None of them wanted to be known as his disciples. Judas felt so guilty about his sin, he went and hung himself. The other 11 are in hiding. And these ladies show up and... This angel, and angels only speak what the Father tells them to speak. He says, you go tell the disciples and Peter. Peter evidently in himself had said, I'm done. I'm going back fishing. In fact, when Jesus finally confronts Peter, Peter is fishing. Now he's at the upper room with the other 11 because it says later on that Jesus confronted all 11 of them. But in his mind, Peter had quit. I thought Jesus was the Messiah. And he's dead in the grave. I'm not dying. I'm not following him like that. I'm going back to being a fisherman. Going to make me some money. But they said, go tell his disciples and Peter that he, meaning Jesus, is going before them into Galilee. There you will see him. Just as he said to you. Jesus told you this was going to happen. But you all didn't hear it. You reasoned among yourselves. Notice verse 8. This is... One of these three ladies is Jesus' mother, Mary, whom a lot of Christians in the world want to raise up to almost, well, they don't want to raise up almost to the stature of God. They want to raise her up as a co-savior. What was Mary's attitude? So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was terrified, and she kept her mouth shut. Because she didn't understand what was going on. She didn't accept Jesus. She didn't think He was the Messiah. She thought He was dead. She thought somebody had come and stolen His body. Now this guy's telling us to go tell the disciples this. No, <laughs> not going down that road. Great example of unbelief. They heard the message but they discounted what they heard because of what they saw. And that is the essence, and, and I'll, I'll, for, believe me, I'm going to get into more detail about this later. But then, verse 11, Mary Magdalene went back. And when she went back, she met Jesus personally. She thought he was the gardener, and she didn't recognize him until he spoke. She recognized the authority of his words. The second he opened his mouth, she said, Oh, my Lord. And she grabbed him. Wouldn't let go. And he said, Mary, let, leave me alone. I haven't ascended yet. 
What did Mary Magdalene do then? She didn't believe the angel. She was afraid to go tell what the angel said. But when she met Jesus, she went back to the twelve and she said, He's alive. But they did not believe. They wouldn't believe what she said. And then verse 13, it says that he also went and met the two disciples that were on the road to Emmaus. Those two guys went back to the disciples, told them, Jesus is risen, we've seen him. But they did not believe them either. They're being told, this is what Jesus is back. He's alive. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Christians today are doing that with all kinds of parts of the Bible. The Bible says this, I don't believe it. And if it hits us personally, it hurts. I mean, it, 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 it keeps you out of the, the, um, the best that God has to offer. Verse 14 says, Later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and notice his attitude towards them. He didn't walk in and say, Oh, guys, I know, it's been rough. Bless your hearts. You all had a really rough time the last three days. I'm sorry. I, I, I should have told you more. No, he rebuked them. He rebuked their unbelief and the hardness of their heart. I was with you for three years. You saw miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. You knew my word was true. And I told you I'm coming out of the grave in three days and none of you have believed it. Even when I've appeared to some of you and the rest of you rejected it. That's hard. But what, where's the unbelief? Literally the word there for that unbelief is apistos. That letter alpha in front of the Greek word pistis, which is translated everywhere, faith. And the, the alpha literally is where we get the un. It means negative. And what they did is they had faith, they just had negative faith. They believed what they saw and reasoned in their minds more than what they were told. Because what they were told didn't make sense. What they reasoned in their mind and what they saw, they believed. They knew Jesus was dead. And they could not accept that He had risen again. Not until He stood in their midst. And even, Thomas even said, I'm not believing until I can put my, hands, my, my fingers in, in the, hand, the holes in His hands and the holes in His side. And when Jesus appeared... He said, here, Thomas, come over here. Poke your hands in these holes. And Thomas fell to his knees and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Thomas, you're blessed because you've, you believe now that you've seen, but how much more are those that are blessed because of the word that you will preach and they will believe because of your word. That's how all of the promises of God to us are because we accept what is preached not what we see. And that's the number one problem. That's why we have to battle for our identity because what we see will rarely line up with what Jesus preaches to us. And you will have to fight for that. Now, he ends up there. We've already read it. Now that you believe that I've risen, these signs will follow you because you believe. 
And he, he basically, he says that I am, you are going to have a ministry exactly like mine. In fact, the last verse, verse 20. And they went out and they preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying miracles. Same word there, it's dynamis. It's signs, it's miracles, it's God's power at work. That's what he's called us to do. Now the question is, if God's called us to have all these signs, where are they? We don't have them because for the most part, and I include myself in this, for the most part, we live in unbelief. We see our circumstances and we talk about our circumstances and we bemoan our circumstances instead of declaring what Jesus said. Now, I've, I've gone back, and I'm, I'm gonna, I really am going to close with this. I've gone back, and just because this is where I started, I've been listening to, because to, YouTube is just full of Kenneth Hagin's past sermons and Charles Capps' past sermons. And Charles was very good on preaching about confession. And to be, I'll be honest with you, my attitude towards Charles Capps and towards the confession message back in the 80s and the 90s was I always kept it at arm's length because something about it just never settled well with me. It was like I was putting on something. And I knew the truth, but I, it, it, the, the, I just had a problem with it. And it just finally dawned on me this week, and you, you can't say that I'm slow because it only took me 30 years to get it. But it finally dawned on me where the problem was, what the problem I was that had it. And, and I'm not saying that Charles Capps was preaching this. I'm telling you this is what I hear, what I heard. And believe me, I've preached a lot of stuff. People have told me I've preached a lot of stuff that the words never came out of my mouth. I've had people come up after a sermon and say, wow, that really blessed me. I'd say, really, which part? And they tell me something I said, and I'm thinking, when did I say that? That <laughs> wasn't in my notes. I don't remember those words ever coming out of my mouth, but that, that's what they got. Sometimes to the good, sometimes to the bad. But, but what I saw was in the, the old method of preaching about confession and watching your words, it was like I was imposing a watch over my mouth. And I was making myself watch what I said rather than getting a complete revelation of who I was in Christ and getting so committed and so um, um, fully persuaded of Jesus in me and God's anointing on me that suddenly my confession straightened up because I wasn't looking. I was looking so much at Jesus. Hebrews 12 says that. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. When I look so intently on Him and I get so concerned about who He is in me and what His anointing on me has done and what He's called me to do, that suddenly that will change the way I talk. Brother Hagin used to say it all the time. If you listen to people long enough, you will locate where they are spiritually. And it usually does not take long. We talk problems instead of answers. Why? Because we're more convinced of the problems than we are of the answers. 
We haven't changed our identity to say, you look in the mirror and you see Jesus. I look in the mirror, I see my dad and it scares me. I think, man, where's the guy I used to know? The 17-year-old kid that was, you know, put in the kid's top um, parlance, I was hot. Well, those days are dead and gone. But still, when I look in the mirror, I shouldn't so much see me as an old man or see my dad. I need to look in the mirror and say, wow, I see Jesus. I see Jesus and I see his anointing. When I walk in the room, I ought to know for a fact I command this room. There's nothing going to happen in this room lest I give permission spiritually for it to happen. Well, you really think you're something. No, I think God is something. And He thinks I'm something. And He said that to me. And it's not just me. It ought to be all of us. We need to walk through life boldly declaring, Jesus is here. And when people say, where? Write me. Be as bold as Paul was. Follow me as I follow Christ. Problem is, sometimes we don't follow Christ very closely, so people have a hard time following us. And if they do, they just get in the ditch with us because it's the blind leading the blind. And I'm preaching to me just as hard as I'm preaching to you. So here's our task, and, and we'll, we'll look at what unbelief looks like. And if you want to look at it, go to the, the three gospel accounts of when Jesus went to um, the city of Nazareth, when he returned home, and he preached, and look at how they received him, and then what happened towards the end. They started off in faith, because his preaching was anointed, and it brought the crowd to a point where they could believe and then suddenly their minds started saying, wait a minute, this, this is Joseph's son. And then Jesus, realizing that they were rejecting him, he dug it in a little hard. Jesus had a way of doing that. He said, you just, you know, I know you're going to tell me, physician, heal yourself. Well, let me tell you, when Elisha was prophet, there were a lot of widows in Israel, but the only one that got provided for was um, the widow in Zarephath, I think it was called. She was a Gentile. And there were a lot of lepers in Israel, but the only one that got healed under Elisha's ministry was Naaman, a general in an opposing army. Then they were filled with wrath. Then they wanted to kill him. They took him out and took him to a cliff and said, let's just pitch him off. I don't care if he is Joe's son. He's evil. And he turned around and walked through an angry crowd and they could not do anything to him. Now that's owning the room. He preached them up to faith. They rejected him. He, he said, okay, if you don't want me, I'm going to tell you, you're just like the, your ancestors who I, or Elisha would not minister to because of their unbelief. And they wanted to kill him for it, and he still commanded the room. He walked up to the cliff. It says he went with them. And then he turned around and just walked away, and nobody laid a hands on him. Why? Because the devil couldn't. He was like that greased pig. He couldn't grab onto him. And the people were serving the devil. They couldn't grab him either. We need that kind of boldness. Why? Because we're just like that. We, we go in his name. We go with his spirit. We go with his anointing. 
Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.